Okay, everybody ready? Number one, when others do things, I'm sorry, when others do not do things exactly as I would, or in a way that I think is best, when others do not do things exactly as I would, or in a way that I think is best, I criticize them verbally or mentally. When people hold differing opinions than I do about things that are not clearly delineated in Scripture, I judge them to be wrong, immature, or unspiritual. When talking to someone who holds a differing opinion than I do, I immediately try to persuade that person that he or she is wrong rather than demonstrating respect for that person by trying to understand more completely his or her point of view. I better do that one again. When when talking to someone who holds a differing opinion than I do, I immediately try to persuade that person that he or she is wrong rather than demonstrating respect for that person by trying to understand more completely his point of view. When other Christians disagree with me, On minor doctrinal issues, I have difficulty fellowshipping with them. When other Christians disagree with me on minor doctrinal issues, I have difficulty fellowshipping with them. Number five, I don't believe there is any such thing as a minor doctrinal issue. (laughs) Just kidding. It's not really number five. It should be, but it's not. Number five, when I'm discussing political issues with someone who holds radically different views than my own, I become sinfully angry or end up saying something I I later regret. When my spouse or some other person with whom I am close desires to do something differently than I do, I try to change his or her mind without first considering his or her desires or his or her point of view. When those close to me persist in using annoying mannerisms and irritating idiosyncrasies, I have difficulty tolerating them. Eight, when people of other races want to be my friend, I hesitate to befriend them or determine to limit the scope of the friendship. Nine, When people of greater or lesser socioeconomic levels want to be my friend, I hesitate to befriend them or determine to limit the scope of the friendship. When I encounter individuals who zealously hold to religions other than Christianity, I angrily write them off as foolish rather than praying for their salvation. When I see other parents allowing their children to do things that I would not allow my children to do, even though no sin is involved, I judge them to be poor parents. Number 12, when someone does something that my conscience would not allow me to do, I judge that person to be sinning before I evaluate whether or not the Bible classifies his or her behavior as wrong. 13. When a weaker brother has a scruple about something that I do, 
When a weaker brother has a scruple about something I do, which I am convinced the Bible does not prohibit, I struggle with feelings of contempt for that brother. When a weaker brother has a scruple about something that I do, which I am convinced the Bible does not prohibit, I struggle with feelings of contempt for that brother. When other people sin, I reprove them for sin before I consider whether or not the transgression should be overlooked. When others do not follow my counsel to the letter, I assume that they really do not want to change or I judge their motives in some other way. 16. When, other who, when others who struggle with sin problems that I find repugnant, such as maybe homosexuality or drug addiction, when people who struggle with sin problems that I find repugnant need my assistance, I struggle with not wanting to minister to them. When others continue in sin, I become angry if I do not see them suffer the consequences of their sin as quickly as I think they should. When I recognize that a small sacrifice on my part would provide a great benefit to someone else, I struggle with sacrificing my desires for his happiness. When I have a conflict with another church member, my first inclination is to withdraw or write the other person off rather than to reconcile with him or her. And finally, when I hear a message in church that does not directly pertain to what I want or think I need, I allow my mind to wander or wish the speaker would be more practical rather than trying to understand and apply the meaning of the text. Okay, go ahead and add up your score. Well, thank you for being honest. I mean, honesty is like a real big, important quality in resolving conflicts. Kind of hard to deal with somebody if they're not honest, right? So you have that going for you. That's right. That'll help, that'll help tremendously in a conflict, won't it? Okay. If you scored between 94 and 100, again, you're a very forbearing person. Between 86 and 93, that's still very good. Maybe could use a little improvement. Between 75 and 85, probably need considerable improvement. Below 74, urgently need improvement. Pay attention. Now, the word tolerance in our culture, in our day especially, uh, stirs up mixed feelings in the hearts of many contemporary Bible-believing Christians because we've been accused of being intolerant of certain practices, lifestyles that the scriptures teach are wrong. And up to a point, we are right to be intolerant of those things. But showing tolerance is biblical, especially about those things that other people do that are not wrong. 
And so whereas when you're dealing with a person who's a believer and he is sinning, we have to be patient. But there are things that people do that irritate us that at the end of the day are not sins. And we have to not just be patient, but we have to put up with them. And that's etymologically what the word means. You have to put up with stuff. Not necessarily sin, although Jesus, I remember one time Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and his disciples couldn't heal um, the boy who was um, possessed by the demon. And, um, you know, father of the boy comes and says, um, I asked your disciples to help me, but they couldn't cast the demon out. Anyway, Jesus said to them, using this word, he said, how, ma- how long must I, for, oh, faithless un- generation, slow to believe, how long must I put up with you? So there is a time and a place where you have to tolerate sin, but, but mostly, I mean, for most of us especially, we have to learn to tolerate idiosyncratic behaviors, things that people do, especially our spouses, our children, that we wish were different, but at the end of the day, we can't open up the Bible and tell them if they don't change, they're going to sin. I mean, they're, 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 yeah, they're sinning. We have to put up with things that are not sin. Um, and we all have non-sinful idiosyncrasies, quirks, foibles that can be irritating to others. And these often are a cause of serious conflict. But should they be? Not if we are practicing loving forbearance. So as I said, the word literally means to put up with, to tolerate. When used in conjunction with people, it means to have patience with in regard to the errors or weaknesses of anyone. But the word forbearance does not appear alone in this text. It's qualified by the word love, forbearing one another in love. So loving forbearance is what this fourth prerequisite is all about. Love is by nature forbearing because as we know, love covers a multitude of sins. So once again, we're going to look at this from several different perspectives, several different definitions. Number one, forbearance is the ability to recognize and appreciate the fact that God has made each person different. Paul asked the Corinthians, who made you to differ from another? God did, is the expected reply. The Lord has given each of us different abilities, different gifts, ministries, backgrounds, tastes, skin colors, genders, and even body shapes. And forbearance recognizes this fact and accepts it as a good thing. And of course, nothing drives this fact of differentness home quicker and more intensely than marriage. So, Oliver grew up on a farm in the country over 25 miles from the thriving metropolis where his wife was raised. Okay, so let's, let's contextualize this. Okay, so like, Oliver is a farmer, okay? So like, where's the, give me like a rural town around here where there's like, you know, pig farms and all of that. Harper. Harper? Okay. All right. <laughs> what did you say? Fredericksburg. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess everything is relative, right? <laughs> so, 
So, so, so, what would the, what would the equivalent uh, be? You know, closer to San Antonio. S- small town. Small. Uh, okay. All right. Anyway, Oliver's father raised pigs and chickens and <coughs> came to town twice a month only for the purpose of getting supplies. Lisa's father was a big city lawyer who entertained people in his uh, in his home regularly. Okay, so you know. Okay, so like, what's the most exclusive community in Fredericksburg? Uh, Boot Ranch. <laughs> Boot Ranch. Boot Ranch. Okay. All right. Okay. Oliver's family was accustomed to going to bed at nine o'clock. Lisa, because they entertained so much, would routinely um, retire for the evening at eleven o'clock. He did the chores on the farm and at home many hours each day. She had a maid and was required to do a little more than make her bed and keep her clothes off the bedroom floor. Oliver's family had to, make, had to make do with little. They bought their clothes at Walmart, drove late model Volkswagens, never took vacations, reupholstered their furniture every eight to ten years. Lisa's family bought their clothing at Brooks Brothers, Neiman Marcus, and expensive specialty shops. They drove brand new Mercedes-Benz and BMWs. They vacationed frequently at the beach and lake house and routinely gave a couple of rooms of furniture away every year or two to replace it with something new. Oliver loved sports. He was on the varsity football, baseball, and basketball teams at the public high school. Lisa went to a prestigious private school, including several in other parts of Europe, had no interest in sports but loved the arts. He loved to ski and go to movies and car races. She loved to dance, to go to the theater, and to the symphony. He liked American popular and jazz music. She liked classical music and opera. She spoke five languages. He spoke Texan. <laughs> Suffice it to say that they came away from two with uh, they came from two very different backgrounds. So Lisa and Oliver were bound to have many conflicts in their marriage, not because one of them was necessarily more of a sinner than the other, but because they were different. I mean, after all, is it a sin to shop at Neiman Marcus if you can afford to do that? Is it a sin to shop at Walmart for your clothes if that's all you can afford? No. But they were going to have conflicts because they were so different. And different is good. But what time would they retire when they got married? What would they, where would they purchase their clothing? What kind of cars would they buy? Where would they go on a date? Where would they go on vacation? Where would they live? What kind of house would they buy? How would they furnish and decorate it? How much domestic help would they have? Attempts to resolve these normal marital issues would be more difficult for Oliver and Lisa than for many couples whose differences were not so pronounced. But loving forbearance can make it easier. So the first thing we have to understand if we're going to be forbearing is that we're different from other people and it's okay to be different. We've got this interesting couple in our church. I mean... When this couple got married, he, um, he was like 21 
years old. He was a very mature 21-year-old. Um, never went to college, but like, you know, all through his teenage years, he did his devotions like in Calvin's Institutes. I mean, he was like really a good theologian, and he was a very committed Christian. Well, his father had some friends in Brazil, and um, uh, this man had a daughter who was educated all over the world, she was like in her early 30s and um, came to stay with them for a while. She spoke five languages, right? Well, little by little, lo and behold, my friend's son um, started developing feelings for this older woman. Now she's Brazilian. He's Southern, right? He's a good old boy. And... Um, one thing led to another, and I ended up um, doing their premarital counseling. And, um, I mean, it is amazing to watch them operate. First of all, to look at them, you wouldn't know there was any kind of significant age difference between them. But they really get along well. And, you know, for example, uh, he speaks uh, Portuguese in the home now. So the rule in the house is, you know, he didn't know Portuguese before, but they're married, and so the rule that they decided is... Um, at home, they're going to speak Portuguese, and out in public, they're going to speak English. And so, I'm telling you, it's like remarkable how well th these two get along with each other. But it's largely because of the fact that, for the most part, they have the other three characteristics going on. They're both very, very mature. And, of course, they have to learn how to be tolerant with and forbearing of each other. All right. Secondly, forbearance is the ability to distinguish sin issues from non-sin issues. Although we must sometimes, as I mentioned, show forbearance when people sin, we will more often have to put up with non-sinful things uh, that others are accustomed to doing. If we cannot distinguish between the two, we find ourselves slow to tolerate anything because everything will become an offense to us. And what right do we have to get offended at things that don't offend God? Over the years, I've <clears throat> kind of been astounded at some of the legalistic rules that Christians have. Maybe you've heard of some of these. Women should never wear pants. We must abstain from certain pleasurable activities. If it's pleasurable, it must be a sin. Singleness is a holier state than marriage. Don't eat rabbit. Yeah, I remember I went to a seminar years ago and this well-known Bible teacher was trying, was trying to convince us all that we shouldn't eat rabbit, you know, based on the Old Testament dietary laws. And his... <laughs> His point was because supposedly, he just said this, I don't know if it's true, he said, it takes more calories to digest uh, rabbit than the calories that the rabbit has, so you know, it's not a good idea to eat rabbit. To be truly spiritual, you must slavishly follow certain Christian teachers. Men shouldn't have beards or mustaches. I got asked to speak for this same guy years ago, and... Um, this guy with the rabbit. And, uh, and so they call me up and they say, uh, Lou, we'd like you to speak at our conference. And I said, okay. 
um, tell me more about it. And so he went on to explain the thing. It was, um, I won't go into it, I won't identify this guy, but long story short, at the end of the conversation, the guy says to me, um, now Lou, I, I looked at your, uh, I looked at your uh, web, web page, yeah, and I saw your picture, I noticed you don't have any facial hair. I said, well, actually, I, I, it was the wintertime, and I, I sometimes grow a beard, you know, for a month or two in the winter. Anyway, I said, well, no, I don't have one right now. I don't know I have one, but, you know, I just shaved it off. He said to me, well, that's good because our, the president of our organization um, doesn't allow people to speak if they have facial hair because studies show that people don't trust people with facial hair. So, you know, I talked to my elders about it, and thankfully they told me I didn't have to go. <coughs> Don't let your toddler play with the remote control. Don't listen to anything but worshipful Christian and classical music. The best way to pray is by using this formula. You must feed your infant strictly according to this schedule. No matter what. I'm not mentioning any names, just <laughs> telling you. Um, the Bible says, solid food is for those who are mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern between good and evil. There are real problems that occur when you confuse the two. As Isaiah 20 or 5 in verse 20 declares, Woe unto those who call good evil and evil good. Not the least of these problems is legalism. In James 4, we're given a warning about this. You remember in, in um, we mentioned last hour, I think it was last hour, about 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 5, 5, 4, about not judging things that are about which you don't have evidence and not judging the motives and thoughts of another person. Well, here's the third exemption to the rule. You know, people really abuse the... The Matthew 7 verse, judge not that you be not judged. That's a very specific thing. The fact of the matter is, my Bible says, he who is spiritual judges all kinds of things, but he himself is not rightly judged by any man. As Christians, we have the mind of Christ and the word of God. We have the word of God. We judge lots and we judge everything. The only thing we don't judge are things about which we have insufficient information, the motives and thoughts of another person, unless they disclose them to us, and this passage is the third exception, we don't judge things to be sin that the Bible doesn't say or that the Bible says is not sin. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver who's able to judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When James says, if you speak against your brother, he means to speak against him in the sense of judging him to be doing something wrong when he really isn't. There's a serious implication of making such an uncharitable judgment about a brother. Do you know what it is? It's as if you're saying, so what if the Bible doesn't condemn it? Everybody knows it's a sin to do it. I shouldn't tell you this, but how many people, how, how many Houston Astro fans do we have here? Astros? Houston. Uh, well, who's your baseball team? Who are you root for down here? Well, baseball? We don't Rangers? Rangers? Yeah, we, we're, 
Okay, all right. Okay, how many, how many root for the Spurs? All right, how many root for, what's the other one? Mavericks, yeah, yeah. How many Mavericks fans do we have here? Come on, be honest. Come on. Okay, all right. Well, okay, let, let me just use myself as an illustration. I really hate to burst your bubble if I haven't done it already, but I mean, like, I'm a New York Yankee fan, all right? Now, some of you are probably thinking, I can't believe what in the world is a Christian doing with anything with the likes of a George Steinbrenner? Well, yeah, yeah, you didn't have to know that. I'm sorry. But I mean, so where is it written that I can't be a Yankee fan? All right? And, and still be a Christian. Boston, yeah. Well, that's my sister <laughs> who married a guy from Boston. It's as if you're saying, so what if the Bible doesn't say it? Everybody knows it's a sin to do it. When you judge things to be sinful that are not clearly delineated as such, at least in principle, in the scriptures, you wrongly judge not only your brother who did the misjudged deed, but the Bible for not condemning the deed and the author of the Bible who apparently forgot to include it in Holy Writ. The verse continues to say, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your brother? Well, I don't know why God didn't put it in there, but he should have. Everybody knows it's a sin for the the Yankees or whatever it is your scruple is. When you judge your brother, you judge the Bible because it's not in there, and it should be, and you judge the person who wrote the Bible because he apparently forgot to put your little pet scruple in there. It's a very serious thing to judge people to be sinning when they're not. Now, sometimes sin must be tolerated, but things that are not sinful ought always to be tolerated by the Christian. This is not to say that we can't try uh, to do anything to reduce or eliminate the irritation from our wife. I mean, you know, your husband's got any syncrasy and it really really bugs you. You know, it's not to say you can't talk to him and ask him to change. But, you, you know, you have to do it in such a way that it's clear that you're not condemning him for doing it that you know that what he's doing is not a sin. So it's the first year of our marriage and uh, we're eating dinner. Kim's on one side of the table, I'm on the other side. And she looks at me and um, I'm sitting there, and my, my, left, uh, my left hand is just sort of, my arm is resting on the table while I'm eating with my right hand. And she looks at me and she says, do you not have any manners? I'm thinking, yeah, what are you talking about? Lou, in the South, it's considered impolite to eat with your left arm resting on the table. I'm thinking to myself, listen, I know what Emily Post says. His elbow is on the table, and even then, the food's got to be on the table. If there's no food, you can put your elbow it's on the table. The proper way to eat in the South is to put your hands on your lap. You know, meanwhile, 98% of the world, you put your hand on your lap, you know, when you're eating, it's just very, it's actually rude to do that. So she went on for a minute, and finally I looked at her, and I said, Kim, I love you, and I'm willing to change anything in my life that's a sin. And I'm even willing to change things in my life that are not sinful, but you can't treat something that's not a sin as a sin. And so sometimes, yes, we can talk to people about the things that irritate us, but at the end of the day, if they're not willing to change, we have to tolerate it. We have to put up with it. Third, forbearance is a willingness to allow others the freedom to develop and express their own unique lifestyles within the framework of Scripture without passing judgment on them or holding them in contempt. What is contempt? Are you asking? Yeah. It's a willful disobedience. 
contempt of another person. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily have to do, we think of contempt, we think of some kind of a hatred, you know, a person who has like a contemptuous attitude, right? But that's not necessarily what it means. It means thinking lightly of or not considering seriously uh, what another person believes or or what he holds to. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean hatred. You know, there are two different words. You remember in one place Paul tells Timothy, don't let any man despise you. In another place tells Titus, don't let any man despise your youth. You get them backwards sometimes. But there are two different Greek words. One word means to think down about. And the other word means to think around. Both words, so, so, so you don't let any man think around you etymologically. In other words, don't let any man ju- just um, uh, have a dismissive added. Both words have to do with having a dismissive attitude towards somebody. And so we have to be careful that we don't have contempt or dismissive attitude toward Christians who don't cross every T and dot every I exactly the way that we do. Now, I want us to focus on this phrase, unique lifestyles. What do I mean when I speak of unique lifestyles? We each have our own style or way of living. There's a certain bundle of behaviors, if you please, that sets us apart and distinguishes those from, some, from those around us. Some lifestyles are inherently unbiblical, such as the lifestyle of sexual immorality or hedonism. Others' lifestyles are acceptable within the realm of scriptures. I don't know what it's like here, but you know, in our church we have very traditional Christians, you know, who like traditional things. And we, you know, they, they wear ties to church and, you know, look very, very neat. Um, you know, at all times, um, we have other Christians that are more yuppie Christians, and we have other Christians that are, um, I'm not sure what the word is, but the bottom line is, they, they live their life within the framework of Scripture, but they're different. You know, some of them like to drive Volvos and, and uh, BMWs. Some of them, you know, like to drive American cars. Some of them like to shop one place, another shop another place. The bottom line is, in our church, we've got all different kinds of shapes and flavors of people. And we, we need to be tolerant of each other because the Bible gives us the freedom to be yuppie Christians or to be more traditional Christians. To like one kind of music, to shop at one place, to like another kind of music, to shop at another place. As long as our lives are within the context of Scripture, we ought to put up with and tolerate each other. We have freedom to live as Christians with great diversity. There are a wide array of behaviors, customs, and activities in which we are free to participate. As with Oliver and Lisa, Lisa, some live modest lifestyles and some live wealthy lifestyles. Another passage that speaks to this is Romans chapter 14. As I read the first six verses... Notice that there are two types of Christians identified and two sins to avoid, one for each person. See if you can pick them out. Actually, I have them highlighted on the screen. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. That's one type of person. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, 
But he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt he who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each man may be fully convinced. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who does not eat for the Lord, he does not eat, and give thanks, gives thanks to God. All right, so did you spot them? First, there's the Christian who is weak in faith. We sometimes refer to this brother, this person. There's a parallel passage in, in 1 Corinthians 8 that uses a different term, but we call him what? The, the weaker brother, right? That is the person whose conscience is weak. His conscience has not yet been programmed biblically and as a result he has scruples about things that a more mature Christian whose conscience has been rightly developed who, to put it in biblical language because of practice, has his senses trained to discern both good and evil, does not. His conscience is not fully developed. On the other hand, there's the person who has faith. Paul later goes on to refer to this type of person, and this is what we should all aspire to, as being strong. Now to those, uh, now as to those special instructions for each, the weaker brother is not to judge the stronger brother, and the stronger is not to regard with contempt the brother who does not eat. In other words, the person with the scruple ought not to say or even think, how can he do such a thing? Doesn't he care about what the Lord thinks? And the stronger brother, who is to avoid holding his brother in contempt, ought not to reason like this about the weaker brother. Why doesn't he grow up? I hate it that I have to limit my freedom in Christ when I'm around him, lest I should offend his unbiblical scruples. And so, the sin holds the weaker brother in contempt. That's the Stronger brother, um, and the weaker brother's sin is to judge the stronger brother. Okay? Here's the bottom line. Don't you dare presume to judge. Don't slam the gavel down in your heart or with your mouth and pronounce judgments on the actions of the stronger brother or the opinions of the weaker brother without the authorization of Scripture. So putting all this together, to be forbearing is to put up with, not to uncharitably judge or hold in contempt, the lawful lifestyles of other believers, remembering that God has accepted them. Now, as you can imagine, this weaker brother, stronger brother matter has been a source of many conflicts down through the centuries. But does it have to be if we would just practice loving forbearing? Forbearance. Imagine how much smoother relationships in church would be, relationships at home would be, if each member truly allowed others to express their biblically acceptable lifestyles without holding them in contempt or judging them. Imagine how much smoother things would be for you if people around you were more forbearing with you. Next definition, 
Forbearance is the ability in close relationships to distinguish swing issues from fire issues. When my youngest daughter was a toddler, my in-laws brought her a toddler swing. Now, in, in case you don't remember what a toddler swing was, a toddler swing is a swing that's got a, a harness on it, so it locks the child in. The, swing, the child can swing freely uh, and not fall out, doesn't need an adult supervising him or her to you know, make sure that she's not going to slip off and fall. So try to imagine this scenario. My wife and I went to visit some friends in the country. We pull up, and one of my daughters, who was, um, say, two years old, spots a swing set and says to me, Daddy, can I swing on the swing? And, you know, thinking it was a toddler swing, I said, sure, honey, but let's go in and spend some time with our company. And then when we come out, I'll swing you for a few minutes. So we go in, and we have our meal, and we have fellowship. And then she reminds me about the promise I made that I was going to take her out for a swing on the swing. So we go outside, and as I get close to the swing set, I notice that um, it's not a toddler swing. It's a regular swing. And I say, well, honey, um, I don't think we're going to be able to do this because this is not the right kind of swing. But, you know, when we get home, I'll swing you on your swing set. And then she starts making an appeal. She says, but Daddy, I've been waiting for two hours, and you did promise me. And besides, if you held me on the swing, I wouldn't fall. And if I fell, you could be there to catch me. And I think to myself, you know, she's right. Um, I really did promise her. It's not the end of the world. I probably can do this for a few minutes. I think I'm going to swing with it. I'm going to let her swing because it's that important to her. So a swing issue is one in which I can go both ways on the matter. I may prefer to go in one direction. The person with whom I'm in conflict may prefer to go in another direction. But because I'm a forbearing person, I will swing with it, as they say. If it means that much to you, I'm willing to yield my personal desires to yours in order to prefer you in honor and pursue peace with you. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, it says. So then pursue, or we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, that's a swing issue. What about a fire issue? A fire issue is an issue that, although not necessarily a sin, would be very difficult for me to agree to. Perhaps it's a matter of personal preference or taste or enjoyment, but for whatever reason, I find the matter objectionable. It's not that I would refuse to do it if I absolutely had to, but I really would rather not. And so... Let's suppose it's the next day and I'm out in the backyard. It's a fall day and um, I've laked up, raked up some leaves and I'm about to burn the leaves. you have any firemen here, I got permission from the county to burn the leaves. Okay. And so one of my girls comes up to me and um, says to me, Daddy, I'd like to play in the fire. What? Yeah, I'd like to play in the fire. It looks like it'd be fun. Well, honey... Um, you can play in the fire. But daddy, it's so pretty and it's making all these pretty noises and these pretty sounds. Can I please play in the fire? Absolutely not. 
And so there's a difference. Now remember, we're talking about non-sin issues, okay? We're talking about things that are not sin issues. So that's the idea. We've got to be able to distinguish between a swing issue and a fire issue. For whom is it a swing issue and for whom is it a fire issue? And basically, on a case-by-case basis, the person for whom it's a swing issue ought to be willing to swing towards the person for whom it's a fire issue. Does that make sense? Right. Number five. Forbearance is the ability to put up with the idiosyncratic swing issues that you wish were different in another and to sacrifice your own desires for his benefit. You have to put up with those things that irritate you that at the end of the day are not sin. And the Bible has much to say about yielding our personal desires for the good of others. Who you, we, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just to please ourselves. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death, even death on a cross. So one of the things that God calls us to forbear with, to put up with, is the idiosyncrasies of others. Part of the uniqueness of God's design and part of the consequences of the fall is that we each have our own set of peculiarities, quirks, and foibles. And these oddities sometimes prove irksome to our fellow sinners whose peculiarities don't exactly mesh with ours. What's more, the Bible teaches that there are certain people who are at least temporarily more peculiar, more weak than others, and that these members of the body require special attention. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members don't have need of it. But God so comprised the body, giving more abundant honor to the members which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 5.4. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Remember that a part of a person's idiosyncratic differences largely have to do with his internal thought processes, his preferences, his opinions, his beliefs, his desires that are peculiar to him. 
That is a big part of what I mean when I speak of putting up with idiosyncratic swing issues. As we reveal our hearts to others in conflict, the things we value become very apparent. Others may not value these things quite as highly as we do, if they value them at all. But a forbearing individual always keeps in mind that the things he values most are not necessarily valued as highly by the person with whom he's in conflict. He understands that for many things in life, there's more than one way to skin a cat or ladies ice a cake biblically. And armed with this understanding and with a desire to obey the second greatest commandment, love his neighbor as himself, he's willing to yield to, forbear with the different desires of others. So who is it that you are most in conflict with? What is it about that person, those persons, you have a hard time putting up with? With what little quirk of personality or character do you find it difficult to forbear? That's the question we should ask. Six, forbearance is the ability to respond lovingly to the immaturity of others without lowering ourselves to their standard of immaturity. At this very moment, every believer on earth is in a state of flux as to his or her sanctification. That is, we're all in process spiritually in various stages of development. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What does that mean? From one level of maturity, it's talking about progressive sanctification. From one level of maturity to another level of maturity to another level of maturity. As we observe in a mirror the face of the Lord, as we look into Scripture and understand what it's like to be more like Christ, we're changed into that image. Not overnight, but little by little. A forbearing individual not only recognizes that we're all in various stages of spiritual development, but also he has compassion on his fellow strugglers. When he observes immaturity in others, he desires to help them grow rather than condemn them for not yet growing up into his own exalted, glorious spiritual state. He's compassionate rather than judgmental. If you're uncharitably judging your brother to be immature, how much more mature are you than he? Are you not like the pot who calls the kettle black? Romans 2 is especially instructive about this. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in whatever you judge, in in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God is is rightly upon those who practice such things. But do you dispose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same things yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Hmm. Kindness and tolerance and patience. Look at that. Not knowing that the goodness of God, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So this passage basically teaches that God holds back. He forbears in exercising. He holds back his full judgment, at least temporarily, on every person who is born. But it's a very serious thing to think lightly of this benevolent mercy of God. We who uncharitably 
judge others to be immature, yet are intolerant of them, condemn ourselves because to the extent that we also are spiritually mature, we are practicing the same things. Biblically tolerant people accept the fact that others are and will be immature. But rather than censure their immature brethren or accept their immaturity as satisfactory, they lovingly and prayerfully try to offer a hand to encourage spiritual growth. And finally, forbearance is the ability to demonstrate biblical love to another believer even when they are struggling with sin. As I said before, sometimes we really do have to tolerate people who sin. Forbearance is a communicable attribute of God. What's the difference between a communicable attribute and an incommunicable attribute of God? Anybody know? A a communicable attribute of God is an attribute like love and wisdom and mercy. He can communicate it to us. An incommunicable attribute would be, you know, his his sovereignty. You know, we can't be sovereign. We can't be omniscient. We we can't be omnipotent. So, God is forbearing with us, and we can learn from him how to be forbearing. Therefore, because he's forbearing, we must be forbearing as well. In this case, the Lord exercised forbearance with a generation of people who were faithless and twisted. Those are two pretty serious sins. How long, you perverted generation, unbelieving, perverted and twisted is really what he says there. How long should I put up with you? It is willing to put up with, to patiently endure sinful behavior for a time. But being too forbearing can be problematic. Paul sarcastically uses our word five times in 2 Corinthians 1, chiding the church for being too tolerant of fools and false teachers. You can check that out later. Okay, so just for the sake of clarification, when, under what circumstances is it proper to tolerate sin? What do you think? When is it right to at least temporarily tolerate someone's sin? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, good. Change isn't easy. It usually takes time. This is especially true for someone who's trying to overcome years of life dominating sin. When I know that my children are convicted about their sins and are really trying to work hard to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, um, it's easier for me to put up with them. But I think when you're dealing with a new convert, I think that's the time to be forbearing. And I think, you know, the Bible does talk about, as we saw before, a weaker believer. When we're dealing with someone who is a weaker brother, I think we have to be more patient and more tolerant with them. Okay. um, Let me... um, we can either stop here and we can open it up to Q&A or I've just got some, got some guidelines I can give you, guidelines for developing forbearance. I probably can't unpack them all, but I can at least give them to you. So uh, can, you, can you handle about five or ten more minutes of this? Can you forbear with me? <laughs> guidelines for developing forbearance. First of all, learn to look for the good things in others. It's easier for some of us to see character deficiencies in others quicker than their positive traits. And it's really important for us to learn how to look for the good things. Whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is noble, think on these things and think on these things in terms of evaluating other people. 
it may even be good for you to make a list of the positive qualities. You, who, ask yourself, okay, who, who are like the three people that I'm most critical of? And then come up with one of these charts. Identify the person's name and then identify under his name the particular positive traits that you can commend him for. And as you start thinking about that, it will help you be more forbearing and less critical of that individual. Second, remember the degree to which God has made you dependent upon others. You may sometimes wish you could simply snap your fingers and eliminate certain people from your life, but that would be God's prerogative and not yours. The fact is, He has designed the body of Christ to be interdependent. As members of the body of Christ, we need and are dependent upon those individuals with all of their weirdness to function properly. And again, we just read this passage in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. John MacArthur explains the fallacy, the fallacy of self-sufficiency. He says, even as Christians, we sometimes fall prey to the notion that because we are complete in Christ and because he is our sufficiency, we therefore do not need, really need anyone else to live a faithful Christian life. Yet the idea completely contradicts Scripture. God made us and redeemed us not for himself only, but for each other. We would never have heard of God or the gospel had it not been for someone leading us to Christ or providing us material to read. We could not have grown in the faith and obedience had it not been for Christian teachers and friends who helped us and guided us. We cannot possibly fulfill our own ministry, whatever it is, without being mutually dependent upon others. Even the Apostle Paul needed the encouragement of others. I long to see you, he said, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Third, consider that God may want you to change your mind as a result of your listening to somebody else. Isn't that a no novel thought? Could it be that the person you find so difficult to forbear with could actually teach you something? Yes, it could. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 17. Think of the scriptural examples of foolish people who, after being instructed, were not tolerated. Here's a few examples. King Asa by Hanani. King Herod by John the Baptist. The people of Nazareth by Jesus the Sanhedrin by Stephen. Number four, don't major on minor doctrinal issues. You know, I made the point before that um, bad doctrine is something that ought not to be tolerated, but again, I think we've got to add two caveats to that. First, when it comes to issues that are not a matter of orthodox theology, the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, salvation by grace alone through faith, we ought not to break fellowship with other professing Christians. Now, I know technically, you know, all doctrinal error is sin. Okay, I, I get that. But the fact of the matter is, when we get to heaven, I think we're all going to be surprised, you know, about some of the views that we held that were not as biblical as perhaps we thought they were. And so I think we have to be forbearing. I, I don't know if you do this, but in our church, we'll often quote the Apostles' Creed. You know, and it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Well, I mean, do you? 
I mean, do you believe, you know, that there are people in Fredericksburg who don't cross every T theologically or dot every I theologically the way you do, but they really are in the kingdom of Christ? Second caveat, within the context of the local church, though, even minor doctrinal differences can be problematic. Christians are united not by experience. Well, some are. I mean, like many in the charismatic movement, their doctrines all over the place, you know, because they're not united by doctrine. They're united by an experience. But Orthodox Christianity, we are united by doctrine. So doctrine is important. It's what we believe about God, how we interpret the Bible that enables us to live in harmony with each other. It's really interesting. Um, you know, I'm a member of a Presbyterian church, and one of the churches that I'm working at is a Baptist church. I work in Reformed Southern Baptist Church, and, you know, they're cool with it. And I think that's cool. You know? Five. When you find yourself passing judgment on someone or being critical of that person, pray for him. Make it your goal to have a biblically programmed conscience. If you realize that you are a weaker brother, realize that it's not good to stay that way. I remember years ago I was in, in church and... Um, I was a candidate for an elder and one of the elders was trying to convince me that I should totally abstain from alcohol. You know, and he made his case and of course I refuted it with scripture. And um, at one point, I think he got frustrated and um, he said, well, look, you know, um, I'm a weaker brother. If I can't persuade you biblically, then consider me a weaker brother and because I'm a weaker brother, you should abstain from my benefit. I said to him, if you're a weaker brother, why are you an elder of this church? I mean, yeah, there are weaker brothers, but we can't stay weaker brothers. At some point, we've got to grow up and be mature. For by this time, though by this time, you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Remind yourself frequently how forbearing God has been with you. Maybe it would serve you well to make a list of all the sinful habits you have yet to conquer as a Christian. If nothing else will cure you of an intolerant spirit, remembering all that God, for Christ's sake, has put up within you probably will. Again, Romans 2, 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? All right. Well, that's it. We've got to get along with each other. We've got to make every effort to maintain unity, but it ain't going to happen if we don't have those qualities going on in our life. Okay, so first we'll entertain some questions about the forbearance issue, and then we can just open up the questions, even if we didn't cover just questions about conflict resolution in general. Maybe I can give you some things from the book that I didn't have time to cover today. Yes? Biblically, 
of any examples. Christ meets the woman at the well, mm-hmm. and he knows her past. Mm-hmm. But I think, but he knows her future as well. Yeah. And, and I guess my question is, without without getting too close, you know, we, we talked for a second about how to how how forbearance tolerance of someone's sin at a particular stage in their life mm-hmm. may be necessary. Right. Or advantageous as it moves them closer to salvation. Or and I'd say therefore necessary, yeah. Um, I guess my question is, I see once in a while the need to address that sin, conquer that sin, move on from that sin. And although it somewhat sounds like the guy who asked you about the alcohol, well, I'm the weaker brother. Mm-hmm. Well, I know people who are struggling, and they're still struggling. Well, again, you know, I think for a period of time, again, I, I think a couple of times I said the word temporarily forbear. But at the point, if a person is lollygagging, then I'm not sure that, you know, that, that you are required to show quite as much forbearance to someone who's lollygagging and not, not doing the things. You know, if he's trying and he's failing and he's trying and he's failing, and you see him trying, you know, I think all the more reason to be patient and forbearing with him. But if he's not using the biblical resources that God has given him to deal with the issue, um, then I'm not sure uh, that you need to be quite so forbearing with that kind of person as you would if you knew he was really trying. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, conference table, yeah. Yeah, um, it's basically, I think, I think they're like two or three, I have them in print somewhere, I might could forward them to Cody, but basically there's, there's, there's a set of rules. You know, it's just basic stuff, you want to sit down, you want to pray before you begin, uh, you want to have somebody take notes, you want to have someone lead the meeting if it's more than, you know, two people. And then just some basic biblical guidelines of communication. It's a whole little package that we have. I think it's a three-page handout that we give to people. But basically, it's a time for them to sit down and confer about the things that there's a biblical need to confer about. And we have guidelines to keep them from, you know, within a, to help them stay within the context of Scripture. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Talk about any, anything concerning conflict resolution you'd like to ask me, I'll be happy to try to help. I, I know. I, what's that? Does it get easier? Uh, oh, yeah. In, in your experience, uh, you know, I was laughing with Greg because here I'm down the road and I'm still having conflict. My wife and I are still having conflict. And, and I want to I be in Paul still had conflict. Well, I mean, you're kidding yourself. You think you're not going to have conflicts. But, the, I mean, the goal is you're able... So when you start out, okay, maybe it would take you and your wife an hour and a half, three days to solve a conflict. Then you learn these biblical resolutions and you get to where you can do it in, you know, three hours. And you want to get to the point where you can resolve most conflicts in five to 15 minutes. But no, yes, at some point it will decrease... Some of it, it will decrease the, the, the frequency and the intensity of conflicts, but it's not going to totally eliminate it. But it doesn't have to. You know, if Kim and I, if two people agreed about everything, one of them wouldn't be necessary. So, you know, you're going to have conflicts. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. But what you want to get to the point is not... W- and, you know, even, even that, you know, a lot of people think the difference between a good marriage and a bad marriage is that in a good marriage there are relatively few conflicts. 
uh, in a bad marriage, in a, in, a, in a bad marriage, there are lots of conflicts. That's not necessarily true. Some of the best marriages have, you know, a fair amount of conflict. It's just that the couple can resolve the conflicts quickly, biblically, and, you know, pretty much without sinning, without a whole lot of sin. And when they do sin, they go back quickly and ask for forgiveness. So, uh, don't give up. Mm-hmm. And okay, so, you know, we have two people, and because I'm sort of, Tom and I never have, we always work out our conflict just very quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the children. <laughs> and so, but I'm thinking, okay, so if two people, let's just, here's an example. We've got the sin of gossip. Okay, so this person A thinks person B gossip. But person B doesn't believe that what they did was gossip. How do you come to a, do you just have to agree to disagree? And you just say, well, okay, I'm going to forgive her. No, 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 not if it's a sin. If one person is accusing, and I, I, I have a whole chapter in the book, but if one person thinks the other person is sinning, then you have to get somebody else involved. You know, Kim... Well, okay, let me, so um, years ago, I got into the habit of watching late night television. And uh, so um, Kim comes into the study one night, into our den, and says to me, Lou, you need to come to bed. It was like 1130 or something. And I said, ah, I'm not tired. I want to watch, I don't know, Leno or something. And she said to me, um, Lou, do you realize this is the, the fourth night in a row you've been staying up, you know, close to midnight, um, watching television and really you're not thinking um, it's impacting your counselees you're dragging you're really really tired and of course you know I knew she was right so I said it's not a sin for me to watch television and she said to me um, okay Lou how about if tomorrow we call Pastor Ed and let's tell him what you've been this week let's ask him whether or not he thinks what you're doing is a sin I said I'll be right there um, you know, sometimes you need a true yoke fellow. You remember those two women in, in, uh, yeah, um, who couldn't get along with each other in, um, yeah, in Philippians? Odious and soon touchy. Remember them? Well, they needed a true yoke fellow to help them get things resolved. And when two Christian, when one Christian thinks another pr- Christian is sinning and there is no resolution, the sinning person is not able to convince the, the other person um, that he's not sinning or the other person is not able to convince the sinning person that he is sinning you pretty much have to go over your head. Now, again, Kim might say to me, Lou, suppose we, we get, I think what you're doing, I think you're spending too much time fishing or whatever it happens to be. She might say to me, Lou, <clears throat> would, you, would you please ask brother so-and-so, you know, one of my friends, a pre-agreed upon person, would you ask brother so-and-so whether or not he thinks what you're doing is a sin? Now, when I hear that, I know what's going on. I know the implication of that is because, honey, if you don't, I'm going to have to get somebody else involved. So, I mean, yes, you know, and I might say to Kim, honey, I really think that was, I was not, I was not disrespectful. Honey, why don't you call Martha? Why don't you call Sally? Ask her. Just tell what you said verbatim. Tell them what I said and get her opinion of that. You know, so, I mean, again, sometimes I think we have to go outside the marriage to, to get another person to be a true yokeful or mediator. And the Bible talks about this. You, you have Matthew 18, right? If you want to hear you get somebody else involved. You have 1 Corinthians um, 5. They were going to law with each other. Paul says, 
Ask, is it true there's not one wise man among you who shall be able to judge between... I can't tell you how many times as a counselor, uh, or even an elder in the church, um, you know, you have to sit couples down or women down to a different one in the church and try to be a true yoke and help them get on the same page. It's just part of what we have to do as an elder to help people in the church uh, come along and resolve conflicts. And if you cannot get a conflict resolved between a brother, then biblically you have to go outside the family or outside the conflict and get another Christian. It doesn't necessarily have to be an elder, but get another Christian to help you get things resolved. And a, a humble person is going to be willing to do that. So with this example, I mean, the gossip, that's obviously a very blatant thing. Mm-hmm. The TV thing, it's not technically, like you said, watching TV is not the same. So what the point Yeah, I knew it was a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, I mean, I, she was right. I really was not getting enough sleep. I was not being a good steward of the temple of the Holy Spirit. I really was being selfish. I mean, she was right. She was dead right. I guess, I guess you have to look past. Someone might come back and say, yeah, if we're in the box, show me where the battle Well, okay, but... Okay, but, let, but let's just suppose she's making a mountain out of molded. So we go to the brother or the, whoever it is, and you know, the person says, look, Kim, I know that this upsets you and everything else, but I can't open the Bible and tell Lou that he's sinning. You know, now, after that happens two or three times, she's going to think twice about you know, dragging me before one of my friends again, right? But I mean, I do think sometimes you have to do that just to kind of find out where the parameters are. And some people are easily offended. But, you know, after getting your wrist slapped two or three times by somebody else, somebody else saying, look, you know, this is not a sin. You really, it's not something he has to repent. You're going to have to be forbearing and patient with him. You know, the people usually learn how to adjust their expectations. So, do you handle wisdom issues the same way? Mm-hmm. When you're trying to, it's not, it's not yeah. sin, but it's just an issue yeah. of wisdom. Like, it's just not wise to do that. And so, is that where you have to you mean between a husband and wife, or you're talking about as a mediator? Um, as a husband and wife or with children. I was thinking more of children. When you're trying to help. Well, I, I, I mean, what you, what you want to do, because again, like I said, sometimes there's more than one way to, to skin a cat biblically. And you have to look for guiding principles on both times. So I may say, look, here's what I believe. I, I want to spend some time studying the scriptures. And um, you spend some time studying scripture. Let's come together again and, and let's see if we can construct some biblical principles and guidelines so that we can make a decision that we both agree with. But at the end of the day, if having done that and it's not, you know, it's not a slam dunk sin issue, then clearly the wife has got to submit to her husband in an issue like that. But, but I do think that the husband ought to be willing to, you know, the wisdom from above is reasonable. It's easily entreated. Uh, you know, a husband ought to consider his wife's perspectives, especially if she's coming at him with scripture. And like I said, I think it was last night or this morning, you know, use scripture when you're arguing. No, it'll be out in October, Lord will. It's called, uh, the new title is called Resolving Conflict. How to make, disturb, and keep peace. When you have two parties who don't, won't If you know they're both in sin, um, you probably have to do more than that. And if you're an officer in the church, you know you, you have the authority and the responsibility. To, you really have the respons- You may have the responsibility to do it, even if you're not a church officer. But um, I mean, again, you, you know, you're, you're patient. You try to help. But at some point, if having done 
uh, you know, giving them as much counsel as you possibly can, they are con- you know for sure that one or both of them are in sin, then you may have to risk the friendship and you know, try to persuade them to either get help from you or from somebody else. And again, I, I say that because the scripture doesn't give us much wiggle room there. If it's a sin, you know, and the person is not willing to change, it's not trying to change, we have little choice but to uh, go to the next level. And again, in the book, I, I talk about, I, I unpack the Matthew 18 passage and the Luke 17 passage and the Galatians 6 passage, you know, in more detail than I was able to do here today. I wish, I wish I, I wish I had it. Yeah, it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be out in August, but um, the publisher just kind of got overcommitted. They, they, they actually, they, they're taking over another really famous author, and in the process of doing that, they had to push the rest of us back. But be patient, it'll be here. And I think it, it'll be, it'll be worth the wait. Yes, was there a question back there? Okay, um, I probably have a lot of ideas on that. So, so when children, how do you help children resolve conflicts? Well, I, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to model it as a husband and wife. Okay, and then I think they're going to come to you and they're going to try to make appeals and they're going to try to resolve conflicts. And then a, a, on an ad hoc basis, I know it's, t- it's time consuming, but I think what you have to do is to help them see where they were wrong, help them to see where they're, what they should do as an alternative. And there's basically, you're going to take the conflicts that come up with their parents or with their siblings and use it as an opportunity to, to teach them what the Bible says. Above and beyond that, um, um, memorizing scripture, I think, is the best thing you can do. My, at the back of Kim's Bible, she's got, and she's had it for years, She's got a page for Sophie and a page for Gabriella. And as she's reading through her quiet time, as she finds verses that she knows the girls need based on their character issues, their struggles, she just takes that verse and put it in the back of her Bible. And then that'll be the verse when they're younger that she encourages them to memorize. You know, you walk into their, they share a bathroom. And, you know, we got one poster, one side of, uh, one side of scripture for Sophie with all scripture verses to memorize and, you know, those for Gabby. It's funny, I was talking with a lady just this week, and we were talking about this, a woman I was counseling, and what she does, she takes a Sharpie or a dry erase marker and just writes right on the window, you know? So it keeps the scripture up there. But bottom line is, I think scripture memory is very, very important because, again, it's not so much your wisdom, it's not so much your idea that they learn to resolve conflicts biblically, but it's God's idea, and the sooner they're able to understand these things and apply them to their lives, the better. And they can learn scripture at a very, very early age. So those would be the three big tips I would give. All right, well, let me pray for us, okay? Father, um, I'm sure every one of us um, feels like we've just taken a drink from a fire hydrant today. And I know there's a lot of convicting material that we talked about, a lot of helpful material, a lot of practical material, but there's no way we're going to be able to leave here and apply everything, even remember everything. So I pray, Lord, that you help each of us to... um, Think about the things, maybe just one or two things that we've learned today that we're most in need of changing. Maybe even one or two of those issues, the pride, the 
harshness or anger, the impatience, the tolerance. Give us the grace and the wisdom just to focus on those one or two things. Learn how to put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and put on the new man who's created in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.